So a recruiter asks a job candidate, why did you leave your last job? And the applicant replies, it was something my boss said. And the recruiter asks, what did he say? And the candidate says, you're fired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like, get a new job. That's what he said. (laughs) I hate when that happens. If you're paying even a little bit of attention to the world of venture capital right now, you'll know things are wild. I'm talking about sky-high valuations, record-sized fundraising rounds, back-to-back-to-back fundraises. I mean, how many unicorns can one market bear? This moment feels different, unprecedented. But is it? Here to talk me through it is Bill Beer, a longtime veteran of the tech world and an old friend. As a partner at the executive recruiting firm Diversa Partners, Bill's spent the last two decades helping to build out executive teams for some of tech's most talked about up-and-comers. Spoiler, most of them aren't really up-and-comers anymore. Bill gives me the inside scoop on what's new, what's not, and what's next. So enough of me, let's get to the interview. I have another joke, which is not even a joke. It's so real. Um, and this is even about recruiting, but it's just the joke of this of the industry that we're in right now. Dapper Labs. Mm-hmm. Know those guys. Crypto Kitties. Raised money three weeks ago at a $2.5 billion valuation. News broke on Friday that they raised money again at a $7.5 billion valuation two weeks later. Oh, but, um, my bump. Lord. Oh it's the my world Lord. we're living in. Yeah, I know. I know. It's it's like, you know, every Monday morning when I wake up, uh, Clubhouse has done a new <laughs> a new fundraising round. Exactly right. Exactly um, right. It's, it's, I know the world we're living in is amazing these days, and you're at the center of it, right? Yes. And so um, you and I met uh, almost 10 years ago when I was at Andreessen Horowitz. We've known each other a long time. Yep. Um, you do a lot of executive recruiting, and... You've been in this industry actually approaching 30 years. You've been with Diversa nearly 20. You joined when it was just 10 people. Um, now Diversa Partners has offices all over the globe, You know, seven global offices, 160 um, folks at the firm. Tell me about those early days when you, know, when you were, you know, what inspired you to, to join Diversa at the beginning and, and what were some of the challenges you, you faced as a firm then? Well, I, I joined Diversa in the fall of '03, mm-hmm. and that was still very much in the thick of the post kind of bubble burst '01 meltdown, where um, I mean there wasn't a lot of fun to be had, uh, and we were just starting to reemerge from kind of the malaise and reemerge, but certainly not enjoy like the the benefits of the growing market. So it was a tough time. And I had been with my old firm for 10 years and left in 01, partly because so much of the industry just went into hiding at that point, right? It was a really rough time and certainly not to be in the, in the hiring business, right? It was, there was not any work to be had. So I had left my old firm. I would had been consulting with uh, a fairly big name executive search firm at the time called Christian and Timbers. Uh, I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do and was in this kind of in-between time personally as well for a bunch of reasons. But Christian Timbers offered me a job and it was definitely a good firm. They had been one of the big firms in that you know early internet boom. They were kind of in the thick of it. And they offered me a job and I was about to take the job. And one of the other guys there who I'd become friendly with pulled me aside. He's like, before you say yes to this job, you should call this guy, Paul Diversa. I met him. I, I 
made a huge mistake and I turned down an offer to join him. But having gotten to know you, I think you'd be much happier there. And I had been working, recruiting for startups in, I moved to the Bay from New York in 97, had been working with all of the kind of in the thick of the high growth boom then. Yeah. Um, which has certainly made the current market kind of funny too, um, with certain parallels and certain things that are very different. Um, but my friend said, you should go call this guy, Paul. He does a lot more work with stuff that's in your, up your alley. Like he's in with some of the VCs and the startups. So I cold called Paul and I had this offer in hand and I'm like, Hey, you don't know me, but this guy, Jamie Sanger, who actually turns out as one of my current partners today. Oh man. Jamie said, I should call you. I'm about to take this other job, but maybe you and I should meet. And I went and had like two days of interviews, got an offer, immediately knew it was the right thing for me for those reasons that Jamie had pointed out. And then funny enough, four months later, Jamie joined and we've been together here for 17 years. But if he hadn't done that, I never would have ended up at Diversa. So it is, uh, I'm constantly fascinated by the randomness of how those kind of events happen in life, partially because it's my job, right? And you see the, especially when somebody has like one of the huge wins or just how people get jobs. It's so often the the randomness of which path or email you answer or call you take or friend you have or whatever it is. But my, I live that very much myself. Tell me about those early days. Yeah. What, what were, you know, what were you good at? You were at, you were um, transitioning from contingent recruiting to exec recruiting. Yep. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe before you, well, you know, while you're telling us about those early days, also tell us a little bit more about you know, what diversity does and, sure. and what makes them special. Why don't I, I, I start with that. Um, so Diversa is an executive search firm focused on primarily disruptive venture backed companies. And we help build the executive teams for, for those companies. That is not a totally accurate statement in that a lot of companies get funded in different ways these days. And there's even your occasional bootstrapped startup. And, and certainly the venture community has diversified um, in terms of who's making the bets. But if there is a company where tech is either the centerpiece of their business or they are tech-enabled disruptor, and that's changed a lot, by the way, over the last 15 mm-hmm. years is who our clients are. But if you're looking to build an executive team, whether it's hire a CEO to run a young company uh, or anybody who might report to a CEO, any of the functional leaders that make up an executive team, we're the, one of the firms you would call uh, and hire us to do what we call retained executive search, which means we kind of think of ourselves as a high-end consulting service where we help you solve that one really important hiring challenge and oftentimes lead to many other hires for those same companies. I came from the world of contingency recruiting, which often is a leveling thing, right? We focus on VP and above hires now. I was kind of director and below for the first 10 years of my career, also in tech. And retained executive search is a very high touch, invest a ton of time in these few processes and solve really big, important problems. Contingency search is is different where you cover a lot of ground. You only get paid if you complete the project, whereas I essentially get paid upfront to do my work, or we get paid for our time versus contingency, you get paid for the outcome. And what that allows us is to dedicate time and resources to those really important senior executive hires, such that we're not in contingency, you throw a lot against the wall because you don't know where you're going to get paid. Um, in retained, it's the exact opposite. You know where you're getting paid, so you focus all of your energy on a smaller number of things. Yeah. So when I first got to Diversa, the market was coming out of its kind of uh, doldrums, and 
still in 2003, we're still in the doldrums, right? We haven't, I would say that there were, you know, by 05, 06, we started to really feel like things were coming back around. And interestingly enough, the bull run that we're on as a firm is sort of aligned with where the, the tech industry is. And it was kind of fall of 08 was really the the breakout, oddly enough, in the middle of the last global macroeconomic crisis uh, of its kind or financial crisis. Um, and that's when we really broke out. Now, what's great about that timeline, if you think about it, 03, Diversa didn't, we had no, we weren't even called Diversa then. We had a, ter- we were called Resource Systems Group. I mean, just- oh, the sh- who would ever this, hire them? The shittiest name, our website- <laughs> <laughs> Looked like it was built in 1978, not even not even 2003. Oh my god, I would never hire this firm. It sounds terrible. It's amazing. Ugh. Yes, it was terrible. Um, but we were scrappy, we were hungry, and what we were doing, and this is just the benefit of the when and the how, is we were Diversa got its stride after the bubble burst. So Diversa, my old firm, which I had been at for 10 years. And it was a great firm, and it built a really good firm. Actually, it founded and spun out hotjobs.com. These were good entrepreneurs in the yeah. in the world of recruiting and search. But when a lot of people got really beat up in 01, so by 03, a lot of those people were still licking their wounds. Diversa didn't really have any brand at all in 2000. They had nothing to lose in 2001, so it was like, oh boy, we might have like made our big bet to start a firm when the world wasn't ready for it, but we were hustling when everyone else was kind of licking their wounds. And I think that push, 03, 04, 05, to try to build a really substantial company and our effort, our aggressiveness, getting on planes, meeting everybody, going down Sand Hill, up and down, up and down, up and down, meeting everybody we could, set ourselves up really well so that when the market picked up in 0506 our brand was starting to get established yeah. and when when 08 came we were you know you could still go hire hydric and struggle spencer stewart you know those firms but when this market emerged we were the emerging company and so that lucky timing of coming into our stride when when the world picked up um, in a different way so we were poised for that at the time so much of executive recruiting is you know recruiting is a marketplace of sorts, right? You got to get the, you know, the clients that are looking to hire the executives, but you also have to be building out that network. So, you know, tell me, tell me, how did you, how did you think through that? I mean, ultimately, what do you think, you know, makes a good executive recruiter? Well, there's, there's no one simple answer for it because there's a lot of different styles of people I've seen be very good at this job. You know, in some ways it's kind of classic sales traits, Right, even at the highest end of executive search, if you are a hustler and work ethic, and um, by repeating the process, if you work on a few good searches, you get to meet a ton of great candidates. It's a bit of a chicken or an egg theory. It helps to have a great client, which gives you access to great candidates, even if you're a firm with no brand name. If you right. are doing the, you know, the CRO search for Stripe right now, and you are an underdog company that knew, nobody knew of, you're going to get audience with every good executive in industry by nature of that. Hello? Lewis? Hey, Ben. Sorry, it's a little loud. Where are you? I'm test driving rocket ships. You what? 
rocket ships for the rocket place at. Excuse me. What what does this button do? Oh, don't touch it. Okay. Lewis, we talked about this. It's branding, Ben. Trust me. Hey, does this ship have windshield wipers? I told you. I think we should just explain what Rocket Place is. How we use intelligent software to pair businesses with world-class firms in everything from finance and accounting to marketing and branding, recruiting, software development, domain name buying, product design, and more. I guess we did talk about that. Yeah. So no rocket ships then? No. Are you sure? Come home, bud. Okay. Excuse me, actually. I have to go. How do I leave? Oh, I can't leave. Wait. Why is the floor rumbling? Find your firms, grow your business. Ben? Ben? I don't know if I'm going to make it to the office today. And did you did you have a couple, you know, you talk about this breakout of like 2005 to 2008. Were there a couple of key companies that you worked with that like, you know, it really helped move us forward? There, it's definitely starting in 08, yes. Um, and more so because it's so much part of the narrative that I talk about now of that era. Um, when I think about like the 04, 05, 06 timeline, it's funny, it's like that that to me represents the heavy lifting to be in position to like go get it in 08. But for us, you know, for me, like one of my breakout clients, which if you put yourself back in 08 timeline was Zynga. And mm -hmm. I got in with Zynga as they were about to go for it. Right. And, and Mark Pincus was very good to me. Um, I had a friend who was a co-founder there, Andrew Trader, if you've ever known AT, who's just a great guy and today continues to be a great partner to Versa now at Bullpen Capital. But, mm -hmm. um, Zingo was that breakout because up until then, you know, our aspirations, we were kept doing good work and, and you build your brand and you get a reputation. And I'd been doing a lot of work with Kleiner Perkins at the time. So while no one company stands out, Kleiner had kind of given me in that era, like was a breakout relationship. And of course, you know, top firm yeah. at that time, which gives you access to a lot of companies. Um, yeah. But for me, it was Zynga. And at the same time that we were working with Zynga, there was kind of an era of companies, Groupon, Zynga, Twitter, Guilt Group in New York, One King's yeah. Lane in San Francisco, like a lot of the companies that were making the market, some of which ended up as gigantic companies, some of which ended up having rocket ship growth, but then like, you know, the market is hard. It's hard to sustain. But that yeah. era of companies is where we went from good scrappy firms starting to build a brand name to, oh, look at these guys. We didn't call them unicorns back then. But if we had a name for that group of breakout companies at the time, we were one of the firms starting to get all of those looks. Um, and of course, you know, my focus is heavily on the consumer side of the fence. Um, but, you know, the same was happening in the kind of the B2B landscape. And we were starting to build those companies as well, even though I mentioned a lot of consumer brands there. So that's what stands out to me when I think about where we are today. It was that moment, having hustled really like significantly to be in position to get that group of clients, which then just you know, it, it just snowballed in a good way downhill yeah. and they accumulated and there were more of them and so on and so on. And, you know, as you think about yourself, you know, developing as a better 
consultant to startups and, you know, developing your craft, you know, do you have some like painful mistakes you've made along the way and lessons you've learned? Well, I think, look, the first thing I would say when I think about our craft, and I didn't fully answer your question before about like what makes a great headhunter, um, we deal in a world that's that's somewhat similar to venture, which is often why the venture capital firms are a great source of of leads. They introduce, they invest, and then introduce us to the founder because the founder, inevitably, when you raise a new round, often that will lead to a lot of hiring. Yeah. So one of the things that that's critical for what we do, especially at the level where my clients are tend to be the founder CEOs of of startups. And I've met a thousand of them, hundreds, thousands. I mean, I probably worked on almost a thousand executive searches in all my time at Diversa. And I've met, you know, so many more entrepreneurs since then. So the first thing I would say is like how to partner with a founder is incredibly important. Now, one of the things that I think Diversa has done well is I think we operate with the intensity and the urgency um, that both pays respect to the the founder, the stress of being a founder, CEO, especially. And that almost seems to have grown with the market uh, uh, over the last handful of years. The stakes just seem to be getting higher and the intensity um, gets gets deeper for these entrepreneurs, but they're still young, many times very inexperienced. So I think the first thing that I think about in the evolution of myself, but also just watching this industry is being able to partner with that group of people to build trust, to become like a trusted advisor to have, um, you can't just do this job well if what you are is a sourcer and an introducer of candidates. You have to be an advisor on what it takes to make key executive hires, to build a team, to think more broadly. And so learning to work, you know, those cycles, which only can be gained over time, right? So this is one of those jobs, like many, but repetition and 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 getting more, you know, shots at it, teach you the things. Cause it's all like, well, I've never seen this before. I've never seen this before. And I have a whole career of, I've never seen that one before, but partnering with the entrepreneurs, I would say is the difference between being a good executive search provider and a great one. Um, and part of that comes from truly understanding the pressure, appreciating the lack of experience. Many times I work with a founder, they've never hired a senior executive from anywhere. And even if they have a good track record of doing it, I've done it a lot more times than they have. And um, it was that appreciation, understanding, kind of fluency in entrepreneur that I think was probably the most, the steepest learning curve. You're diverse as anybody we hired even eight years ago, seven years ago, our database is enormous. We know everybody. We have access to all the people. That is not trivial. Meaningful relationships are are still much more significant than a database, but the people are out there. And if you're working with a good company, you're going to get access to those people. But it's how do you affect the outcomes? And then the second part is, how do you like affect, we're talking very senior executives here. You know, there was a, a article, a little blurb from the information that I think came out yesterday about talent leaving Facebook and Google and going to younger companies, right? In this case, Instacart, DoorDash, a few others. But you know, we had recruited three or four of the people of this five or six they were talking about in the article. But when you're recruiting senior execs from companies where, you know, one of the things we can talk about is the, like the amount of money people are making out of Facebook or Google or, you know, yeah. the, the wealth that gets created and what people are leaving behind if they leave another good company. It takes, you know, a lot of years of practice to be able to influence or partner in the decision-making that a very senior exec has um, if they're faced with stay at, 
you know, yeah. big five company making $10 million a year or choose the job that could make you $100 million a year or $100 million or more. And the fact that those are the numbers is one of the craziest changes I've seen in this industry. You know, I feel like a, a sports agent more than anything ever before. I want to come back to that. Yeah. How you talk executives into leaving such lucrative positions. But maybe before that, you know, you were just talking about affecting the outcome of the search, you know, how it's more than just making sourcing and making introductions. And so maybe let's take a moment for that young entrepreneur out there. What does a good hiring process look like of a senior executive from, from your experience? This is obvious, sounds obvious, but identifying the need, like creating the, the spec. So when we kick off a project, uh, we, all of the work we do is, is inbound generated. So we don't make sales calls. Uh, a venture firm or an entrepreneur or somebody where you know, will call us and say, hey, we need to hire somebody. So inherently, that means they've identified that they have a need. Okay, we're, not, we're not out scouring the market telling people, oh, no, no, you have to change your org chart. You need to do this. They're determining that there's a need. But Determining what that need is, is the first thing and getting alignment on who do we really need for this company and this job? What are the core criteria that will make somebody great at this job and focusing in on, um, relevancy to what you're trying to solve for, right? For a young company, seed or series A, you're trying to solve for the next 12 to 24 months in many cases, Mm -hmm. right? And there is an urgency about the next four, eight, or 10 quarters that will define success or failure of a hire you make. You know, if you are you know, a a public company, right? You know, take some of the ones that have recently gone public. You might be thinking about, you know, eight to 16 quarters is, you know, really thinking of a longer term plan. So where you are in your life cycle will determine what are you really trying to solve for here? Um, You know, so really dealing with alignment on what is the spec, what is the criteria, and do we all agree on this, whoever the stakeholders are? Right. And that's probably the most important thing is executive search, executive hiring is not a democracy. Um, but who are the vote getters and what are the things that are important to that group and understanding how we can get everybody aligned? Um, you can change your thinking. You can learn through an executive hiring process. Um, but you have to have alignment and then. Um, it's about focus and execution. You know, if it's not a CEO search, then the founder CEO has to make sure that it's a big time suck to like do a, an executive search. You meet a lot of people. Well, and, ha- and, and how long does a good executive search take? A, a good executive search is, you know, about 90 to 100 days. Um, now, that might sound long to some people. And sometimes uh, speed is celebrated, which can be speed is only great if you got the right person, yeah. right? The the a little time is okay. Let's really we want to meet a series of candidates. We want to learn about the market. We want to test, you know, the over hire, meaning you go out and hire the amazing five star candidate. But that's only great if that five star candidate is excited about your stage and really focused on this and not going to check out three months later. So yeah. how do you like, just because something looks great, you want to vet it. You want to do deep referencing back channeling is kind of the dirty secret of Silicon Valley of like everybody provides references, but nothing gets done in this industry without, you know, confidentially and secretly calling people and asking about candidates, you know, mm-hmm. and that's just how this goes. But the, the proper level of diligence is usually not 
achieved in like 30 days, even though that might be great from an efficiency standpoint or we're almost always behind the eight ball when we start a project, meaning by the time a company recognizes the need to hire an executive from the outside, mm-hmm. usually they're too far behind. Your old friends at Andreessen did a great job of, in theory, trying to make sure you were always ahead of that. And it, it's very hard in practice. Um, yeah. But we're always operating from behind, and speed is tempting, but you know, being thorough is what it's really all about. Um, yeah. And it's hard to do a thorough search in 30 or 40 days. From the candidate's perspective, that individual executive who yeah. is is the one who's going to get hired. Yeah. What does it feel like for them? How many meetings with a company and in 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 best practice? That can vary, you know, there's definitely a too much. Um Right, and where you have everybody under the sun participating in interview in, in an interview process is not healthy. It gets to be repetitive, and you do want to map out. So when we talk about what is a good search, you want to map out what a great process would look like. Yeah. And and I would say that here are the things that we decide. What is really important to the candidates, let's say, here are these six steps to get this job. Meet the CEO, meet a few of the team members, meet a few a board member. Okay, we're ready. We think this is our person. That's great, but... Um, the key thing is to go to the candidate that you want to hire and say, have you learned everything you need um, to make a decision? Or is your diligence complete? What else do you need to complete your process? So there's sort of two phases when you're doing it right. Ideally, an efficient process where anywhere between five and eight meetings, although in that five or eight, five or eight participants in a process, you might have five meetings between CEO and candidate, right? And there's a lot to be said for that. Um, for a variety of different reasons that I could go into, but the number of participants is maybe somewhere in that five to eight range. But if the candidate Mm -hmm. comes back at the end of a process and said, look, I'm really excited, but here are the things that I want to learn. Well, you may introduce other team members. They want to dive deeper on product roadmap. They want to really get into some numbers with the CFO and that person's team. They want to understand the cap table better. And maybe you bring in a board member and the CFO to tackle that conversation. And that's Mm -hmm. the stuff that is highly curated based on different roles, different individuals, different asks, you know, and you'll jump through different hoops depending upon whether somebody's a, a fine candidate that you're excited to hire or like a game changer that you, you know, truly think could, you know, add zeros to the end of your return. Yeah. You'll jump through a lot of hoops for, for that candidate. Yes, you will. And it's very, and especially in the competitive nature of the market we're in, people will go do yeah. a lot of hoops. The other problem though, that we're seeing is the market right now, especially in the spring of 2021, is at a frenzy unlike any time I've seen. The only thing that that mirrors it is that like 99, 2000 timeframe, just from the kind of pure frenzy and pace and, and wildness. It's a very different market, but there are traits that are similar. And what we have now is companies are, are so desperate. They're so aware of competition that they're speeding up their processes, which isn't super healthy, right? Two interviews and two interviews and offer, even if the candidate's ready or not, and then throwing crazy numbers at people to try to offset that. And why do you think that's going on right now? Why is, why are things in such a frenzy? Well, there's, I think a a handful of things. I mean, we, we certainly could look at our 
our valuation bubbly nature to where we're in, but there's just a pace in this market of get it while the getting is good. Um, and we are certainly in that market right now where there's a lot of capital available. A lot of companies are moving forward aggressively. Um, there is a time to pounce that is very real. And so we went from last March or April, nobody knowing how to spend their money or what the future looked like to everybody in a let's go all in right now mode. Um, which applies also to the funding markets, which are overfunding these companies in many ways. But the comp- so that's one competition. There's a lot of really good companies. Everybody is aware of that. Um, I don't think anybody sits there and says we're the only good company out there, or this candidate's crazy if they don't come to our company. The general awareness of the competitive landscape is that I can't complain about everybody being on board. Sometimes people look at, you know, themselves in a vacuum as a founder of a, or an investor in a certain company. And they're like, we're the best. Everybody should want to beg to work here. That Mm -hmm. is not a a real in this market. Everybody seems to be acutely aware of the competitive nature, um, whether it's startups, venture studio, go to the bottom. Venture studios and incubators are fashionable again. Tons of great seed and series A companies getting more funding than ever before. A great mm-hmm. stack of mid-stage companies, the late-stage companies, the young public, the behemoths. I mean, we've got more 50 to $100 billion companies than we've ever seen. We're going to have $20 trillion companies at some point. Pick your poison. It's everywhere. So everybody knows what the competition is. And then I do think there's events. The SPACs are rushing people. Um, I'd say SPACs have sped up processes that, that people are trying to measure against, especially in our world of like a lot of well-funded startups who are, are looking at their opportunities in the landscape. And so I think some of the events of the current market are speeding people up even further because, oh, we're going to be a public company in four months and we better get our CFO in place because that would really not go well if we tried to be a public company without a public company CFO or, you know, fill in the blank. Well, that, that actually is a good question. So do you have certain, certain areas, CFO as an example, or head of sales that, that you and Diversa specialize in, or are you guys just across the board? We, so executive search is a highly specialized field. Uh, and many of our competitors are either boutique firms that specialize in an area or group of areas, product and engineering, finance yep. and ops, you know, revenue orientation. So we, we compete with a lot of companies who are very focused on on their their talent, their skill vertical, and then there are a lot of companies where everybody is organized by um, by specialty, product, eng, finance, revenue, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. We are not organized that way. So I focus on building executive teams for consumer brands. A lot of my clients, I've done anywhere between five and ten executive searches over a bunch of years. Part of our value prop is if we do this well, we could have a long partnership together, and that's something that we feel really strongly about. I'd say um, more than half of my projects at any given time are follow-on searches from existing clients. That's not unique to us, but we are one of the kind of old school firms in that way that we've resisted specialization in a narrow way. Although we do as many engineering searches as the engineering specialist firm, we do as many finance searches as the finance specialist firm. We just have more people who are good at each one of those functions is how I'd frame it. Hey, do you like our show? I do too. If you want to support the startup stack, the best way to do that is by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. Also, send dad jokes, or if you have them, actual good jokes, to podcast at rocketplace.com. Feel free to send us feedback there too.
It does make me think, though, of a different question, which might be, okay, if I'm going to build a relationship with um, a retained search firm, and I'm going because I'm going to build out my entire executive team, shouldn't I just bring this in-house? Shouldn't I have a recruiter on staff that I work with? Well, and and yeah. what's your what's your advice on like in-house versus um, you know working with a, a firm like your like Diversa? Yeah, it's a great question. So one that is happening. Um, but the two aren't mutually exclusive of each other. Uh, and you know this. Okay. A lot of venture firms brought in the executive talent function, but it wasn't to do all the searches. It was to help shepherd yep. a process. Now, where that is more typical is a company hits a certain kind of escape velocity. So uh, one of our team members just went over to one of our clients to be their first ever head of executive talent. Uh, this was at Plaid, great company, You know, unwound uh, an acquisition, uh, uh, an M&A, uh, opportunity they had and um, are now a standalone company, just got big funding, but they are pretty late stage, multiple billions in valuation. And that's the first time they're considering that function. So first off, not too many small companies would consider this as a full-time role, the head of exec talent internally. Most of our clients have a head of recruiting. That tends to be for the bulk, the large number of employees you need to hire across the board. And executive search is still very specialized. So you hit a certain amount of scale and you're going to bring this in internally, but those are our clients too, right? There will be certain roles. You know, I could think of many clients. Chime has been an awesome client of mine recently, and Chime has a great internal executive talent function, but they turned to Diversa when either the urgency is so high, right, and we could spend more people hours on the search than any team could internally. Um, the reach is is different where everybody we're calling is truly gainfully employed and and it's going to take a you know a specialist in this craft to really pry that person you know the right candidate loose um or hey we've got 30 needs at the director level and above you know we need diverse's help on two or three of them right is the yeah. most likely outcome but that head of exec talent executive search role internally is becoming a universally true thing just like it did in venture you know starting with you know, a handful of firms, Sequoia and Kleiner early on, and then it branched out. And now everybody has that function. I would expect most companies of a certain size to have a true head of head of exec talent function internally that will still not eliminate the need for search firms on really critical or hard to fill roles. Well, and let's talk about that for a second, because you mentioned before, the, these folks are at enormous companies. Yes. They're making so much money it's almost hard to believe yeah how, how do you ever um get these recruit these folks out of these well, amazing it, jobs it's it's part of the the nuts and bolts of our industry i mean this is how we've how it's gone forever you could trace this back the trees of entrepreneurialism to a group of successful companies that beget entrepreneurs that found companies that beget other entrepreneurs i mean that is the way it goes so um I just think that's the Darwinism of our industry is that people will continue to bet on whatever the next thing is and want to be a part of that. And I don't know that that is exactly the same in other industries, right? Financial services for a long time was, you know, you could start a new, hang a new shingle and do that thing, but the world was dominated by a series of, of large companies. Um, I think this industry is built on this premise of entrepreneurial entrepreneurialism. So that will never change. Right. Um, I don't, I truly believe that will never change. So I think it's part of the DNA of a lot of people in this industry, not all many people love the fact that we have these great 
large companies that pay very well. Like that's an amazing thing. Like that was investment banking when I was coming out of college in 93. If you wanted to make your millions of dollars a year, you you had industries you would do that in. That's now tech. And I think that's awesome. So there's this entrepreneurial spirit is one. Um, The other part of it is that if you've been a part of Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft app, fill in the blank, right? Whatever it is. Or you were at a company like an Airbnb or a door, Coinbase. Coinbase minted a lot of new millionaires, right? And mm-hmm. you can help build Coinbase over the next bunch of years. But those people went to work with for Coinbase because they want to build something amazing and new. Not all those people want to work for Coinbase, the hundred billion going to trillion dollar public company, right? Part of the thrill was the ride to get there. And it's a different skill set to be great when a company hits 3,000, 5,000, 50,000 employees. So a lot of the people that build these things up are actually meant to do another thing. They don't want to be a part of a, of a mammoth company. Um, and the other part is that if you make X million dollars a year at one of these great companies, or you had a wealth creation event by picking a startup that had a great outcome, you can afford to take more risk. And I think there's more people who would rather try to go figure out how to have a home run grand slam mammoth event, as opposed to the annuity of a very high paying big company job. Yeah. So, and that is peak, yeah. like tw- April, 2021, we're at peak FOMO. We're at peak, you know, who was it? Um, I was reading somebody's tweets the other day that, you know, 10 billion is the new billion, you know, 100 billion is the new 10 billion in terms of what outcomes people are striving for. But yeah. the the wealth creation that comes with that is a very different thing in this market. So I think when you're founding a company today, a unicorn isn't even a thing anymore. Like it's like the the name. They're like you know, seed rounds. Seed rounds at unicorn well, valuations. Uh, honestly, yeah, right. You know, one of the things I'd like to, I always like to ask is, you know, what's the, what's the new trend? And, you know, we've obviously been living through this, through COVID for all this time. People are getting vaccinated. We're pulling out of it, but we're, it's now April, 2021. Is that, is, is that, is peak FOMO the new trend versus where we were in 2020? I mean, is that I, what you're seeing? I certainly think there's a big, a big aspect of that. Um, but if you, the peak FOMO the other way to frame that would be 1 billion is the 10 billion is the new 1 billion, right? And 100 billion is like in play for a lot of people now. And so FOMO gets created because of those realities, but the size and scale of the companies, there were some great articles that went around this weekend about Tiger Management and KOTU and what the hedge slash hedge venture funds, or we have to come up with a name for the hedge funds that are doing this growth venture now, but like yep. how that's changing the size of the rounds, the valuations, the pace of it, like the game is changing. And that's, uh, look, there's a whole economic argument. The, the inflation's coming, the bond prices are up, like the low interest is gone. So like, does this change anything? But I think what's here is this insatiable public appetite to be trading these tech stocks, the size. And I mean, just go look at this NFT market as the next thing of like, who knows what's going to happen. But I just think more and more people don't want to miss out, right? They are Mm -hmm. making bigger investments in seed rounds because they don't want to miss out. The same applies to the executives, right? I don't want to miss out, except you can join a company once it's in that billion to 10. You don't have to join when it's a seed stage, to win, right? You could wait until it becomes a very attractive later stage private company. And if you pick right, there is a massive opportunity there. But it's FOMO. It's the new economy that we're living in, the number of great companies. 
um, and still so many new categories. So I think there is a, a hunger for it combined with the fact that, I mean, look, you're seeing people leave Stripe right now. Stripe is a hasn't even had their outcome yet. Of course, there's secondary markets where yeah. you can liquidate, but you hit your five years at Stripe. They're not even waiting for Stripe to become Facebook or you know whatever else Stripe might become. People are leaving before that event happens. And Stripe is a company with great retention. You know, there's there's a lot of revolving doors in Silicon Valley, even for some of our best companies. Um, you know, and a lot of turnover. That is a natural part of this industry. Stripe didn't have that. But even now people are leaving. They're like, I got that. I got my equity. I got my money. Now I'm going to go do it again. And they haven't even finished the game yet, right? They haven't finished being seen the outcome. It's just, it's a fascinating time. The flip side of it also is so many people have made so much money that the urgency to make a decision is um, either you're sitting on these great annual packages at the big companies, or you've just been a part of a fantastic exit. So our clients all have urgency. Go, go, go. Now, now, now. We talked about the pace at which they're moving. Mm -hmm. The candidates have the exact opposite urgency, and they're trying to wait for the perfect chance to, you know, alleviate their FOMO because I'm picking the winner, but mm -hmm. I don't have to do it tomorrow. I'm just going to wait until my 50 to $100 million opportunity presents itself. So it's a, it's a it. fascinating combination there too of desire, but no urgency for the executives because it's, it seems like it's never ending. Totally makes sense. You know, another big topic that always is coming up in, in recruiting and as we're thinking about building teams, you must deal with this all the time, is around diversity and inclusion. Yeah. And so how, how are you advising teams around building diverse teams, especially in this market where, sure. where it's so competitive? Yes. Um, so I'd say a couple of things. One, it's a topic on almost every one of our searches right now. I mean, we work with private companies, so they're bound a little differently by kind of how a public company has governance uh, on certain topics. So private companies, I'll be privy to some very frank conversations between myself and a CEO, a board of directors, CEO and I, whatever it might be, about diversity goals. We are doing a lot of executive searches where the candidate pool is 100% diverse by requirement. Um, so that's, you know, that is very new. I would say the gender, the gender diversity has been the big topic for probably five years now. And now we have the URM BIPOC community becoming an even bigger priority. So this is a very real part. Um, what we try to talk about is the following. Um, there's a couple of different scenarios. They've tried to build their business in a certain way, which is very inclusive diversity as a core principle. Uh, and they've been committed to that. And it's about continuing that commitment. Um, and even, but maybe their, their team is more gender diverse than it is color diverse. And they're trying to really take that very seriously. There's a lot of other companies that pick their heads up in tech and realize that they're incredibly one-dimensional in terms of their employee base. And they're like, oh my, we have to fix this immediately, right? And they're genuine about it. And they didn't intentionally end up single tract of, you know, all white men or, you know, I've had clients where it was all Asian men on the executive team. And they're like, we can't, I do, we can't hire that person again, right? And so there's different dynamics, but you know, there's a longer conversation. Is it bias? Is it, you know, just you hire each individual person and you pick your head up and you're like, oh, I see. Is that unconscious bias or is that just how this happened? But they want to fix that. There's a whole other group of companies that are like, oh, shit. We are, we have bad culture. We're getting a bad rep. We desperately need to make a hire. Just, you know, let's get that one person in here that'll fix it for us, which is 
crazy to think about that being the logic, but that is a reality. So the challenge is this. Let's say you're a startup company, right? And you're committed to diversity, but you need to do make a certain hire. And you get only a couple of shots at building your company at each phase and doing it right. And the wrong hire can set you back tremendously. If you have this awesome white male executive that you can hire for a job where you are certain that that's the perfect candidate, but you also are really committed to diversity, but you're a young company that's very fragile, right? I see the deliberation of, well, shoot, what is right for us? Like you want to build the company the right way, which is diverse over time um, in, in all your different aspects, a diverse company. I think many, I truly believe is a healthier company and different viewpoints will create more balance. But what if you're in that moment where, well, well let's just make this higher now, the white male, and we'll get that next one the next time because we really want to do it. That's a very real thing to consider because you do have this moment in time where if we don't do this right Right now, we might not have a next time. But then you pick your head up and you realize, oh, shit, we've had a whole bunch of, yeah. we'll get it next times, and we have no diversity on our team. It's a, you know, the public companies are, have the ability to be much more patient and rigorous with this. Um, and that is an advantage. Why? why? Why are they able to be more patient? Because if it's a certain size public company, it's not that the hire, making that one hire is less critical, but their company is functioning without that hire. You know, if you've done, if you've built your team correctly, mm-hmm. you've got layers, you might have a lieutenant that's the interim in a capacity. Startups don't have that. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a whole other dialogue about. So you're kind of just saying there's not enough depth on the team and public companies. Right. Have- Startups don't have a bench. You know, yeah. there's no concept of succession planning at a young company, which is why we're so busy. Right. You can't afford to have your like three layers of what ifs. And if we promote this person, I mean, that's the last thing that small companies get right is career development, succession planning, because you don't have the headcount and everybody's like focus on that next quarter. You're not developing skills. There's an inflection point when your company turns into a certain size company where you start thinking longer term. That's why I go back to my point earlier. You hire for right now at the startups. But if you're hiring for right now, then how do you factor diversity into that if right now is actually a real thing? It's a very complex topic, but it is almost 100% pervasive on every search we're doing right now. Last question for you. If you could, you know, you've been in the recruiting industry for coming up 30 years, you know. Um, <laughs> you say it, it makes what? me feel so old. God. I, but you've, you've, you've got tremendous perspective and you learned a lot of lessons. If you could give yourself a piece of advice, if you could go back in time to maybe 2003 when you first joined, oh, I forget what it was called, the resource group. No, no, yes, right. The resource systems group, exactly. Resource systems group. If you could go back in time and uh, to when you joined resource systems group, what would be the advice you gave to yourself? (sighs) Such a great question. I mean, one is is I would take equity in every company I ever worked with. And then we probably wouldn't, <laughs> we, we wouldn't be talking. And there are firms in our industry that have, have done that. That was never our mm-hmm. model. We have a different approach. But of course now, you know, I have a lot of moments of the FOMO of what could have, should have been. Um, but if I had, if I had it to over, like partially the crystal ball, um, but if I had known then that where this industry was going, you know, I think I would have been, 
there's such a massive opportunity in the technology industry, whatever your role is, right? Engineer, marketer, headhunter serving these companies. We are still in the early innings of what this is, what this is all about. Like tech is not an industry and every industry is tech now. And having, but I didn't, I wouldn't say I knew that in 2003. Andreessen hadn't coined the software's eating the world yet. If I had only known, and I gave it my all, we've given it our all this whole time. But if you had this visibility of kind of being at the, at the early days of, of what was happening and the approach you could have taken to kind of truly building this, because I feel like we've helped build it right from a, certainly from a people standpoint, our fingerprints are so all over some of the most impactful companies this industry's had. And I still feel like, God, it could have been so much more. Um, Mm -hmm. so you know, I'd say if you're getting into this industry now, right, treat 2021 as if it's 2003, because, you know, that is like sort that. of what it is, right? And the opportunity in this industry, again, product, eng, finance, if you're an administrative assistant in this industry, it doesn't matter. Like you were in the early days of what, you know, continued industrial revolution that we're a part of. And so find your, your spot in it and chase it incredibly hard if that's what your motivation is. Because the opportunity is just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So I think that's awesome, Phil. You're giving me the FOMO right now. <laughs> um, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, um, it was great. It was uh, really great having you um, on the Startup Stack. Thank you. Thanks, Lewis. I loved it. For more on our conversation today, visit www.rocketplace.com slash podcast. We upload a new episode every week. So if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the Startup Stack in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to them. Thanks again for joining us. See you next week. The Startup Stack, written and edited by Hannah Levy, produced by Leah Jackson.